This morning, it's my pleasure to have us continue something that's become somewhat of a new tradition for us here at Westmont, and that is hearing from one of our faculty members, not in a lecture format, not even in a dialogue or discussion format, but in a sharing format. Each one of our 70 full-time faculty members is more than a faculty member. They're human beings. They're men and women. They're mothers and fathers, brothers, sisters, sons, daughters. And they have an entire life through which God has been working and in which God has been working. And so we've started this time. We started with Dr. Tro as he shared from his life and shared his journey. And uh, I know, like many of you, I was deeply moved by what he shared. And uh, this morning, we're going to have Professor Mary Doctor share. And uh, Mary, of course, is Dr. Doctor to us, which we love to say. And uh, she's going to be sharing from her life. She's Associate Professor of Spanish here at Westmont. And I should add that sometimes when I ask our faculty to share from their hearts and from their lives in front of a group this size, it can be a bit nerve-wracking because it's not the giving of a lecture, it's not the preparing of a class, and it takes real courage to share, and I've appreciated the fact that uh, faculty have been willing to do this. So before Professor Doctor comes up to share her journey in Christ, I've asked that uh, the president of our Student Body Association come up and offer a prayer for her, and then after that, Mary will come up and share. So Eric Hansen. Just, be, just before I pray, I want to read something from Mary Wilder Tileson's book, Joy and Strength. It's a devotional. <clears throat> God is too wise not to know all about us and what is really best for us to be and to have. And he is too good not to desire our highest good and too powerful desiring not to affect it. If then what he has appointed for us does not seem to be the best or even to be good, our true course is to remember that he sees further than we do and that we shall understand him in time when his plans have unfolded themselves, meanwhile casting all our care upon him since he careth for us. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we read in your word that if we trust in you with all our heart and lean not on our own understanding and all our ways acknowledging you, you will lead, you will direct our paths. And Lord, we just thank you for Professor Doctor this morning and for her journey. And we pray just for clarity of her thinking and her words this morning. And we thank you for her life and what she means to us. So we just pray a special blessing on her. And we thank you for your direction in her life. In your name we pray. Amen. Good morning. Um, it's really a pleasure to be able to talk to you this morning because... Uh, I get to talk about my favorite subject, me. <laughs> no, but actually, it's it's kind of a uh, it's a little petrifying when Bart asked me to uh, to speak. Uh, I was a little nervous, and I went to speak to him, and he said, "I think this is what he said." He said, "Just imagine you're in your living room, chatting with friends." Okay. You know, I don't I don't know what Bart's house looks like. <laughs> My living room is just a little smaller than this, Bart. And you know what, Bart, when I have guests over, I don't make them sit in the dark. And, and I don't put like a 5,000 watt spotlight on me. 
My spotlight's like 2,000 watts. I don't know. No, but seriously though, folks, uh, I'm not here today. I'm not here today to teach or to preach, but rather, as Bart said, simply to share. To share with you a little bit about who I am. Disclosure is difficult. Yet, through disclosure, people come together. So, sit back and relax on my comfy living room furniture, and uh, welcome to a little bit of my world. To understand who I am today, you first need to know a little bit about where I come from. So, what I'd like to do to begin is to share two things which have significantly helped shape me, my family and my church. I grew up in Northridge, California, home of earthquakes and valley girls. I was the third child born out of six to a university professor and a nurse. It seemed in, like in all of my home movies, uh, my mom was either pregnant or holding a baby, or most of the time, both. Um, my family was and is very close. To this day, my parents, two brothers and three sisters, are my closest, dearest friends. We enjoy each other's company. We support, each, we support each other, and we laugh a lot together. And I'm happy to say that a lot of my family has made it today. My father and my mother, Bob and Diane, my sister Sharon, my husband Eric, my sister Julie, and her husband Paul. So that's about maybe a third of the group at the most. <clears throat> it's because of my family that each Sunday my husband's son and I make the 200-mile commute to Pasadena to attend church, the same church I grew up in and which my entire family attends. After church, just like we went, when we were younger, we typically all congregate at my parents' home to, it's the same house we were raised into, the same house that grew with the expanding family. And we have dinner there or we celebrate somebody's birthday and with uh, my brothers and sisters and parents, their husbands and their kids, there's 23 people in the immediate family, so you do the math, there's always a birthday at my parents' house. As I see a new generation of children playing ping pong in the backyard or riding their bikes down the street or swimming in the big pool where I learned to swim myself, I relive little pieces of my own childhood. And one of my fondest memories is sitting around the dinner table laughing, sharing what we did that day. And after summer, supper, my father would bring out uh, the big book of children's devotions, and I think it was even called the big book of children's devotions. And when we were a little older, he would let us... Uh, choose the lesson and read it aloud to the group. And there was always a time of questions and answers, and then we prayed together. My parents taught us about God, about faith, about ethics, about doing the right thing at a very early age. <clears throat> Through my family, I've learned about love, about relationships, and about commitment. Commitment to each other and commitment to God. <clears throat> I'd like to tell you just a little bit about my parents. My mother, Diane, is a shy, soft-spoken person, someone who prefers to be in the background, working behind the scenes rather than on center stage. She models compassion and sympathy. She's a wonderful listener who always knew how to comfort us when we were angry or hurt. She consistently sees the good in everybody and has taught me to focus on the positive whenever possible. <clears throat> when I was younger, our church was located in a rather dangerous area of downtown Hollywood. One Wednesday night during the band and choir practices, a mentally retarded adult wandered into the parking lot and started playing with the kids who were playing there. His name was Bruce. <clears throat> Some of the parents were worried about him. Why would an adult want to play with children? He must be trouble. But my mom saw him for what he was, a simple, lost child. 
As he returned each week, she stood up for him when others wanted him to leave. She always treated him with dignity and respect. When he was hit by a car, restricted to a wheelchair, and sent to an adult rehabilitation center, my mother visited him regularly and took him out on outings. She put up with his often difficult personality and kept in touch with him as he moved from center to center. Bruce first wandered into that parking lot over 20 years ago. To this day, my mother still sends him cards and care packages and speaks to him on the phone every week. He's a Christian. Verily I say unto you, insomuch as ye have done it unto the least of these, my brethren, ye have done it unto me. For Bruce, my mother embodies God's love, his kindness, his faithfulness. For me, she models Christ. Now, my father, Bob, is very different from my, from my mom. He's a, very much a center stage kind of guy. He's a wonderful speaker, writer, and thinker, a gifted teacher and educator, a tireless worker who gives of himself generously. He's taught me many things, and I still go to him for advice. One thing he always said to me was, be a little different. Mary, be a little different. Quite frankly, when you're almost six feet tall in junior high, like it's hard to be anything but different. <clears throat> but he taught me not to let myself be defined by others, but to define myself. He continues to validate me, to tell me how proud he is of me. Uh, when I was growing up in, in the 60s and 70s, my father was on the Los Angeles school board and he fought very hard for integration of our schools. I learned the importance, through him, I learned the importance of treating everyone with respect, regardless of race, ethnicity, or social class. He instilled in me a sense of social justice, a need to reach out to the lost and the forgotten. This philosophy was even carried out in our home, where there was always, besides the six kids, there was always somebody else living at our house, a friend of one of my brothers and sisters, somebody who needed a place to stay for a few nights, or usually a few years. When my brother was 18, he met this guy named Barry who came from a horrible home. I won't even go into the details, but he asked my mom and dad if Barry could spend the night. He said, no problem. And then, you know, that after the, and he's like, well, can he spend the weekend? No problem. You know, he kind of needs a place to stay for the week. Yeah, he lived with us two and a half years. <laughs> and that was rather common. My father, my father also instilled in me a great love for the Salvation Army, our church. That's right, our church. Some of you are saying, Salvation Army? Is that a church? You know, I know what you're thinking. You see the, uh, you see the thrift stores and the trucks driving by. You see the red kettles, the people ringing the bells at Christmas time. Maybe you've seen us marching down uh, in the Rose Parade. I always talk about the Salvation Army. Well, I have marched in the Rose Parade, in pumps, mind you. <laughs> and I have played my cornet in front of the Fedco in Arcadia with the red kettle there. And uh, I'll admit if you came to my church, it would seem probably odd, a little different to you. Um, for example, each Sunday, I wear a uniform, a cute little hat too. We have a large brass band and choir on the platform. I play in the band. We also use a military terminology. I don't really like it, but we do. Uh, in keeping with the army metaphor, our church is called a corps. Our pastors are called officers and have a rank, like lieutenant, major, colonel, and the like. I am a soldier, a member. Now, this terminology can cause some misunderstandings. I'll tell you one story. When I was in graduate school, 
Um, I was running a day camp, in the Salvation Army day camp in, in Hollywood, and the core officers, the pastors, their names were Richard and Betty Love. And one day I was, I was out to lunch, and my best friend Kim came, and she said, you got a message, come on, tell me what's going on here. I said, nothing's going on here. Who are you seeing? I said, I'm not, I'm not seeing anybody. And she said, okay, fine, keep your secret. But you just got an urgent message from some guy who said his name is Captain Love. <laughs> He's now been promoted to major love. <laughs> I'm serious. Well, the Salvation Army is among the most respected organizations in the entire world. At the same time, most people seem to know very little about it. In international movement, the Salvation Army is an evangelical part of the Christian church. Its message is based on the Bible. Its ministry is motivated by the love of God. Its mission is to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and to meet human needs in his name without discrimination. The organization was founded in 1865 by William Booth, a Methodist minister who felt that the poor were being forgotten by mainstream religion. In one of his books entitled In Darkest England and the Way Out, he develops the notion of the cab horse charter, which states that no human being should be treated less than a London cab horse. Now, London cab horses were given food, work, and shelter. When they got sick or broke down, they were lifted up, restored to health, and given nurturance. Today in our community, many individuals have broken down, physically, emotionally, economically, socially, spiritually. The Salvation Army, through the work of its many social service programs, attempts to restore these individuals to health and to give them a sense of dignity, and then the claims of Christ are introduced. Salvation Army social work, then, is designed to lift the individual to a place of readiness to hear the Christian message. So I hope the next time you see the Salvation Army Red Shield, I hope you'll realize that uh, the work there is motivated by Christian love. Personally, I find I grow the most through service to others, and that's why I'm attracted to the Salvation Army. It allows me to express my Christianity in very practical ways and uh, rest homes and hospitals, or running a day camp in the inner city, or on the mission field. American poet Rachel Lindsay once said, The Salvation Army is Christianity with its sleeves rolled up. I like that. I like that a lot. That's the kind of Christian that I want to be, and that's why I'm a member of the Salvation Army. I want to mention one more thing about the Salvation Army before I conclude this section. I want to say that from its creation in the 1800s, the Salvation Army has ordained men and women. In fact, if you're married and you want to be a Salvation Army officer, your spouse must also be ordained, for both share equally in the ministry. I grew up in a church where women preached, taught, and contributed equally. And I admit, if, if I were to go to a church where women were silent or did not hold positions of authority, for me, that would seem very odd. My church plays an important role in shaping me and how I think about God and my world, and I imagine that yours does as well. My family and my church, then, provide the foundation for who I am. What I'd like to do now is share two stories and tell you what I learned about myself and about God through these experiences. Here goes. The death of a close friend can't help but affect us. 
If nothing else, it reminds us of the fragility and unpredictability of life. Have you ever had a friend that you could tell everything to? I mean someone who knew everything about you, literally everything, and who accepted you and loved you for who you were. Well, Kimmy was that person for me. We were almost complete opposites. She, a New York Jew, I, a Christian from the Val. And yet, for some reason, we bonded. We both shared a love for Latin American literature and a passion for teaching. During and after graduate school, I would spend several afternoons and evenings a week at her home with her, her husband, and her daughter. Um, I'm going to make a long story very short and simply say that uh, failing marriage and family problems had made her increasingly more dependent on alcohol and opiates. And she was in and out of rehab, each time promising it would be her last. I tried to praise her, to encourage her, to support her in her efforts to stay drug-free. Although she was not a Christian, I think eventually she came to really appreciate the fact that I was. She, she would say to me, she'd ask me to pray for her. She'd say, Mur. I don't know why she called me Mur. Mur, you got an inner line. Use your connections. You know? Like, okay, no problem. Uh, and I remember once she was so proud of herself because she told me she had actually prayed to God. She couldn't believe that she had done that. So there were times when I was very, very hopeful. Yet, in spite of the prayers, <clears throat> she continued to relapse again and again. Finally, her family decided to use something called tough love. I don't know if you've ever heard of it, but it's the idea that with addicts, you have to let them hit bottom, that if you keep rescuing them again and again, they'll never get better. So if you let them hit bottom, then they will themselves want to bring themselves up. So this was the plan, and, and everybody had to participate in it. And to be quite honest, I'd, I didn't want to, but everybody said it was a good idea, and it did seem... It did seem right at the time. Her husband moved out with their daughter, and I didn't return any of her phone calls. She eventually stopped calling. A few months passed. Uh, then one day I got home, and there were two messages on the machine, her husband and her sister. And they both said the same thing, that she was dead. <clears throat> I tell you this story because her death affected me profoundly. I felt like I had abandoned her. At her funeral, her husband told me, I'll never forget it. He said, everybody told her we had to let her hit bottom, but they never told me where the bottom would be. Although intellectually I knew that it was a very egocentric thought, I wondered if I could have done anything to help her, if by reaching out I might have been able to save her. I was consumed by guilt and confusion. I wasn't angry at God. I was angry at myself. I felt horrible that I never took the chance to tell her how much she meant to me and that she died thinking I no longer cared. It was also during this time that I didn't begin to doubt God's existence, but I really started wondering about heaven and hell. I refused to believe that a loving God would send this person, who was clearly so unhappy on earth, to spend eternity 
in hell to suffer more. It just didn't seem fair to me. For several weeks after Kim's death, I remember sitting in the living room alone at night and talking to her, asking for her forgiveness, trying to explain what I was doing there in those last few months, hoping that she could somehow hear me. I spoke frankly and openly. I cried a lot. And at the same time, I I prayed to God and I asked for his forgiveness. As this continued, um, I came to realize something very disturbing. I realized that I had more faith that Kimmy could hear me than I did that God was listening. My talks to Kimmy seemed more authentic than my talks to God. At times, I sensed her presence more than his. I came to realize that my prayers were empty, an empty exercise performed by habit, designed only to make myself feel better or try to feel better, and not with the expectation that anybody was listening or or would answer. Peace eluded me, and doubt filled me, and with the doubt came guilt. Oh, my gosh. I am a person who is particularly susceptible to guilt. I don't know why. Kim used to say to me, she used to say, I can't believe you're not Jewish. I've never met a Gentile who is such a guilt magnet, you know? I, I feel guilty for everything. I, if, I feel, if I feel guilty, I feel guilty. If I don't feel guilty, I feel guilty for not feeling guilty. I'm telling you. So I tend to be my own worst enemy. Well, it was during this difficult time of doubt and guilt that I heard my father say two things in Sunday school class. He wasn't talking to me, um, but I'll never forget these two things. First, he said, if we fail to forgive ourselves, we in fact elevate ourselves above God. We say we know better than he does. I had to accept that if God had forgiven me, and I believe he had, I also needed to do so. I had to stop wallowing in my guilt and self-pity, accept his grace, and move on. That was very powerful for me. Second thing I heard was this. Doubt is a prerequisite to growth. Doubt is a prerequisite to growth. What a liberating thought. All of a sudden, I realized it was okay to have periods of doubt and questioning. In fact, it was not only okay, but through these times, I could emerge stronger in my faith. The Bible is full of strong, godly individuals who nevertheless doubted. You know, David is probably the most vocal about his uncertainties. That's probably why I like the Psalms so much. But even Jesus on the cross said, Why hast thou forsaken me? Sometimes I think that, especially here at Westmont, we all feel we have to be just perfect little models of Christian faith 100% of the time. We're afraid that if we express even a little bit of doubt or question things a little bit, we'll be judged and condemned. I hope that's not the case. For I learned that through periods of doubt, of questioning, exploring what I believe, we can actually grow. Kimmy died over six years ago. I've come a long way since then. I'd be lying if I said I fully comprehend the geography of death. But I can say I no longer feel guilty or ashamed when I go through periods of intense introspection and questioning. Through this experience, my faith has been strengthened. My relationship with God has become more authentic. My prayers are more genuine. I listen more carefully. And I seek his presence more fully. This brings me to my second story. 
little over two years ago, something happened to me. Something so common, yet so miraculous. My son was born. Our son, Gabriel. I had no idea how much this tiny creature could change me. It started even before his birth when he was but a, a hope, a promise, an expectation. And as I carried him within me, with uh, only my imagination to guide me, I thanked each day. I thanked God each day for the miracle that was to become our son. And as I felt him move and grow, I too was moved and grew. I felt more connected to God, the creator, the giver of life. Then he was born. Whoa. <laughs> the nine-month mystery now had a face and a name. Gabriel, God is my strength. Brought to live among us, he was our precious, perfect angel. I remember just seconds after his arrival, I held him in my arms and I knew I would never love anything so much in all my life. I felt the heat of his tiny body, his chest expanding, his heart pounding, and I was filled with wonder, amazed by his beauty, his purity, his tenderness. I watched him in those first moments of life begin to drink in this strange world that was to become his new home. His large eyes, and they were big, I'm telling you, studied my face, connecting it with that already familiar voice. And as his daddy cut the cord which had bound us together for so long, I knew there would always be a secret, sacred bond linking us one to the other, a mystical union, mother and son. Okay, I'm getting way too sappy. I'm going to stop. So, I don't want you all to go out and have babies or anything. Wait until you're 30. <laughs> Lest you think I'm romanticizing this all a little bit, um, I'll go, I'll say straight out, it has not all been easy. Okay, Gabriel is two now. Need I say more? His two favorite words are, and let me see if I can get the intonation right. No! Mine! He's a charmer. He's a charmer. He's also at a stage where only mommy can do. Women, get used to this if you have sons. Only mommy can feed him. Only mommy can bathe him. Only mommy can change his dirty diapers. Hey, Eric loves this stage. I don't figure that out. Oh, my goodness. And then it happens. You try to be a good parent. You think you're doing everything right, but it's inevitable. It gets into your home. You can't stop it. Barney's arrived. Every morning I wake up to, hello, boys and girls. Now, you know you're in trouble when you know all four verses to Pop Goes the Weasel, and I will sing them to you later. This part of my journey has definitely been the most tiring and invigorating, the most difficult and the most rewarding. Gabriel has changed so much in his brief life, but he has changed me even more. To conclude, I'd like to share three things that I've learned through this experience. First and foremost, my son has taught me more about unconditional love. You know how when you fall in love with someone, some of you may know what I'm talking about, you think you will never love anyone else in the world that much? Guess again. There's no more intense love than that of a parent for his or her child. 
Gabriel's presence in our lives has, has helped me to comprehend more fully God's limitless love for his children and the amazingly powerful sacrifice he made. Second, I feel more connected to my own family. I have a greater sense of my past, my history. Every night um, when I rock Gabriel and, and put him to bed, I sing him a little song I composed myself. <laughs> Steve Butler, watch out. Um, and in the song, I go through each member of my family, and I link them in families, and after every name, I say, well, I say it in Spanish, but I say, te ama, loves you, so mama, te ama. I won't sing, don't worry. And I go through every name. There's about 40 names, because I include some close friends as well. And now Gabriel knows all of his relatives. He can sing the entire song. Not only does he know them, but he knows how they're grouped together. Yeah, he's brilliant, sorry. But... Um, but as, as I sing to him at night, I also see the connections more clearly myself, for we are all linked together, joined by our love for one another, a love rooted in God. Because of my son, I appreciate my parents in ways I never could before. When I look into Gabriel's eyes, in, into the mirror that is his face, I see my past, present, and future reflected back at me. Because of Gabriel, I also appreciate Eric more fully. Um, he's allowed me to see him in another dimension, not just as my husband, but as the father to our child. And I could go on and on about Eric, um, but I see God's wonderful plan. Some of you may know that when I was offered the job here at Westmont, I had only been engaged less than a month. And I knew this was the place for me to come. I felt it so strongly. But I could not just think about myself anymore. I was about to be married. I had to wonder, would Eric want to make this move with me? Well, not only was he willing, he was excited. He was excited for me. He was excited for us. I continually thank God for Eric, a man willing to sacrifice his job security for mine and start over in a new place, someone who is amazingly flexible and understanding of my odd work hours, and most importantly, someone who is fully uh, who fully participates in every aspect of his son's life. This brings me to my last point. Uh, the song the choir sang earlier was based on Psalm 96 and Psalm 22. And in the former, I think you heard part of it in the, in the solo, David is crying out to God in despair. Yet right in the middle, when he feels God has totally abandoned him, he has an amazing realization. He says, yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast upon you. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. I have never felt so connected to God, so continually aware of his presence and grace as I have during the two years of Gabriel's life. Gabriel has taught me to slow down, to reprioritize, to focus on what is truly important. I used to get stressed about so many little things. I still get stressed, but not about the little things. I don't have time or energy to do that anymore. He has taught me to appreciate each day more fully. And at the risk of sounding cliche, I, I do feel that every day is a gift. I plan my schedule so that I only teach in the afternoons. Every morning, Gabriel and I take a walk to the beach. And we, uh, we collect rocks and leaves, and we look for the seals, and we feed the duckies at the end. And as we stroll together, it is really a sacred experience. For I am in continual awe of God's amazing creation surrounding me, and I cannot help but praise him. Praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the King of creation. The choir sang this earlier. 
I think my favorite part of that hymn, though, is actually the end of the second verse. It says, Ponder anew what the Almighty can do. He who with love doth befriend thee. As Gabriel discovers something new and wonderful for the first time, uh, when a butterfly lands on a shoe or, or he feels that first sprinkle of rain or uh, when he sinks his feet into the sand or lets the ocean rush up against his tiny legs or at night when we go out and say goodnight to the moon, a moon that has come out to shine just for Gabriel. Through these experiences, I too get to see things new, with new eyes, to ponder anew what the Almighty can do. I'm awakened to the magic of a creation, the miracle of life. I sense God's presence at these times especially. In these moments, it's as if God is whispering to me, I am here. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast upon you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. In times of confusion and despair, in times of unspeakable joy, I praise God this morning for his grace, for his faithfulness, for his love, for his never-ending presence in our lives. Thank you. kind of nice being in her living room, wasn't it? <laughs> Thanks for sharing so openly and honestly with us. Let's close in prayer. Father, it is a sacred event to have the honor of peering inside the life of another and to see your hand and how it's worked. We thank you for this small glimpse and the inside story in Mary's life, for her parents, for her church, for her friend Kimmy, her husband Eric, her son Gabriel. We give you thanks that she would honor us by allowing us such a candid view of your work. We pray that we might entrust ourselves to you that we might be as aware of your work in our lives as she has shared with us this morning, and that we might cooperate with your work in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. You're dismissed.